Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, if you need to consult your table of contents for Nehemiah, we understand. It's before Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, Job's, Psalms, Proverbs. But as we look at this, Nehemiah 5, please stand with me for... In Nehemiah 9, verse 5, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. God speaks to us through his word, and so we stand out of respect. Nehemiah 9, verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous." And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of, this land, of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is God's word. Let us pray. O God in heaven, you are that God. You alone are Yahweh. There is none other. You are the one who simply and absolutely is. You need nothing. You need no one. And yet you have created you have built everything by the word of your command. Your word creates the reality in which it speaks. Lord, we ask for that this morning through your written word, that as you hear it, you would produce faith in our hearts, that you would produce, if those who do not know you are here today, that you would do the miracle of new creation, new birth, and you would draw them to yourself. And for those who do know you, for us who do know you, we praise you and give you thanks that you have done that in your life through your word. And we ask that you would strengthen our faith this morning 
through hearing of your plan, through hearing of your kingdom plan that we begun to talk about last week and now we proceed to talk about further. Lord, teach us your way. Show us, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Spirit, impress these truths on our hearts and may we live in light of them. We ask these things. We pray for your strength. Pray for strength for me, for clarity that we might be blessed as a people. Help us, O Lord God, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just to review a little bit from where we're at, uh, last week we started this series called Kingdom Through Covenant. Again, I stole that title from a book because it really, really encapsulates what we would say is the storyline of the scriptures, the storyline of the Bible. Uh, another way we might frame it, and I put this in your bulletin, uh, in your, your notes, uh, because I'm a little long-winded sometimes, I apologize for that, but, but what we're, we're talking about in this series is the storyline of Scripture, and if you try to wrap your hands around the storyline of Scripture, or, uh, here's, here's my attempt anyway of what that would be. The big idea of the Bible, the triune God, Yahweh, establishes His kingdom over the whole world through His chosen King in his covenants with humanity by subjugating his enemies through redemptive grace or eternal wrath for the purpose of his creation, glorifying him for all eternity. In other words, God is making a kingdom, a stewardship kingdom through his chosen king, ultimately the Messiah. He's progressing his kingdom program through covenants in scripture and in that, in, in the midst of all of that, he's saving people. He's subjugating his enemies. We're all enemies. We're all enemies by birth in Adam. He's subjugating his enemies either in redemptive grace and rescuing them, or he's subjugating them for eternal wrath. But for what end? Why does, th- why does everything exist for the glory of God, for the purpose of his creation, glorifying him for all eternity? And just to remind you what a covenant is, I put it in the notes this week, the definition for you, just to remind you, what is a covenant? If God is pursuing his kingdom from Genesis to Revelation, and he's doing that through covenants, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn commitment to a particular relationship guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an implicit or explicit oath. And if you need a concrete picture of what that means, or what a covenant is, think of the covenant of marriage. Covenant of marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a relationship that predated the making of the covenant, and yet the making of that covenant with the vows, the wedding vows that went along with it, the oath that went along with it, it, it's made that, it amplified that relationship. It made it more sober, and there were obligations undertaken by both sides. Now, as we think about covenants, which covenants are we talking about? And that's where I give you that little ladder there just to give you a visual of how this works. Uh, Last week, we talked about the the creation and the Adamic covenant, right? That God from the beginning had a plan and a purpose. And then we're going to talk, we talked also last week about the Noahic covenant. This week, we're going to climb two more rungs on the ladder, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And then next week, we'll talk about the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. But the the idea here is there's a movement from creation to new creation. You remember how we looked at those bookends, those parallels at the Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 through 22, 
We saw those bookends, and we saw there's a return here from creation, a return and an amplification from creation to new creation. But these covenants, as we walk through them, as God is working towards his kingdom through these covenants, they're not just isolated, separate things. They are building off one another. They are interlocking with one another. They're like steps on this ladder. They're headed in a particular direction. And so as we walk through this, remember why we're doing this. Why are we going through this? Well, we're doing it really, in a sense, for Matthew, because we're going to enter Matthew, and Matthew was all about the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. You'll see that phrase in Matthew repeated quite a bit. So if Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, we better understand what's the framework of the storyline of the kingdom leading up to that point to get the background. We can't just be dropped in the middle of the story and expect to understand everything. So really why we're doing this, first and foremost, is so that you might understand the storyline framework of the whole Bible. And part of that is practical in preparation for our series in Matthew coming up. But more than that, I want you to have this storyline, this framework, so that you might better read the scriptures, and not just better read the scriptures, but do what we're designed to do, stand in awe of the God who is accomplishing his narrative through history. You see, the story isn't over, and it's a real story, and it's a story in which we have been swept into by his grace. And not only do I want you to stand in awe, to worship and delight in and enjoy the God who is accomplishing his narrative through all of history, I also want you to live in light of where God is going in history. You see, if you understand the big picture of where God is going, then that helps you live in the here and now in light of that picture. Or another way to say that, it helps you to get on the right side of history. It helps you to get on the right side of history. And so that's why we're doing this. So Let's just review those covenants that we've already talked about so far. Last week, we talked about the Adamic covenant, the Adamic covenant. And the Adamic covenant gives us the kingdom purpose. You remember that God created Adam and Eve to have a stewardship kingdom. They are to image forth. They are to be statues placed in God's dominion in his kingdom to honor and to glorify him. But it's also a relationship with God. It's a relationship of likeness as sons and daughters of God, an intimate relationship with God. They are to, to, they're placed in the garden as priests and kings to expand the boundaries of that garden to the ends of the earth by multiplying image bearers for God's glory. We said, arguably, because God creates marriage in the context of this relationship that he's creating with man, marriage is arguably the sign of this covenant. And we see that through all of Scripture. God keeps using that, that imagery of marriage to, to illustrate his relationship with his people. But we know Adam and Eve fell. They, uh, they reneged on their promises. And so they, thence came the fall, the kingdom fall, where the things were marred, where there was curse that entered and yet, and yet, what we saw is part, uh, God's plan to redeem is the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there would be an offspring, a male offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. The one who had brought about all of this, really, and why do we need a male offspring uh, to crush the head of the serpent to do what Adam 
didn't do, to reign where Adam didn't reign, and to restore things back to the Edenic rest, that rest on the seventh day that God speaks of in the creation. And that's what drives the storyline with a search for the serpent-crushing seed. Next, we talked about the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, which the Noahic covenant, if the Adamic covenant gives the purpose for the kingdom, the Noahic covenant gives stability for kingdom redemption. You see, there is a measure of stability in the Noahic covenant. You remember after the flood, after God had sort of wiped and, uh, the world clean, except for eight people, uh, he, he gave the world a bath, but why did he do that? As a means of starting fresh, so, so to speak, with Noah and with his family, giving them the same creation covenant, reinstituting that giving a measure of rest. He speaks of stability in the created order. He's not, including not destroying the earth again by flood. There's going to be stability. Why? Why do we need stability for the promise of the serpent crushing seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 to come? Stability in the seasons and stability in God not executing his judgment every other year. There's stability in checking human corruption through the means of capital punishment. And what's the sign of this covenant? The sign of this covenant is the rainbow. The idea is God's war bow, the, the war bow he was using to execute judgment against his creation. He hung it up in the sky and said, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So the Noahic covenant gives a measure of rest, a measure of stability, and then points forward to the ultimate return to Edenic rest that God will accomplish through the serpent crushing seed of the woman. Which brings us to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which if you were to tie that with the kingdom, we could say it like this. The Abrahamic covenant provides a kingdom beachhead, or the kingdom beachhead. Now, if you're not familiar with that word beachhead, World War II. World War II. Nazi Germany holds sway over all of Europe and has defended the entire coastline. And the Allies need to invade and retake Europe. What do they need first? They need a beachhead. They need Normandy. They need to retake Normandy. And once that beachhead is established, it provides for the recapture of Europe. Well, in a similar sort of way, but way on a way grander scale, the Abrahamic covenant provides a kingdom beachhead for God and the establishment of his kingdom. So let's pick up with a story. Let's pick up with a story in Genesis 11. Genesis 11. You, um, after the flood, after the flood, uh, Ab- um, Noah's offspring doesn't fulfill the promise or the, the conditions of the Noahic covenant. You remember that, that, that command, that commission of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with image bearers for God's glory. That which was given to Adam was also given to Noah and his offspring, and they failed. Genesis 11 verse 4 says this, Then they, that's the offspring of Noah, said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to spread out. They're supposed to disperse. They're supposed to, uh, to manifest God's glory through the multiplication of image bearers. But what do they do? They clump together to build a city for themselves, to build a name for themselves rather than glorifying God. What does God say? 
And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Through the confusion of languages, God accomplishes what he commanded them to do, scattering over the face of the earth, scattering the nations through the confusion of language so that the image bearers might be dispersed abroad. Now, you're asking, what does that have to do with the Abrahamic covenant? Well, it sets the backdrop. It sets the backdrop because then, turning the page to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we get the first promises that will make up the Abrahamic covenant. Now, just as a aside, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is not the Abrahamic covenant yet. The Abrahamic covenant starts or is officially instituted in Genesis 15. There's a first installment in Genesis 15. There's a second installment in Genesis 17. And then there's a final oath to ratify it all in Genesis 22. However, however, what we see in Genesis 1 through 3 are the essential promises that will grow and be part of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice, given the backdrop of Babel, what what does God do? He says, what the people of Babel were seeking, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation against that backdrop. Now, why? Why is that, right? We see this language here. What is God promising? He promises them a land that God will show to them, show to him. He promises them blessing, blessing to this nation, blessing to Abraham, blessing to uh, Abraham himself, blessing to his offspring his, that's going to come from him. A reciprocal blessing-cursing relationship. In other words, there's protection. If, if someone blesses Abraham, they're going to be blessed. And if someone curses Abraham, they're going to be cursed. There's a reciprocal blessing-cursing sort of relationship. But then catch this at the end. And in you, all the families of the earth, literally clans of the ground, shall be blessed. Everyone. All the nations that were just dispersed in the Tower of Babel, all those clans, all those people groups, all those different language groups that have now gone forth, they're going to be blessed through Abraham. Now, why is that significant? Because everything we've seen in this storyline up to this point has been failure and curse, failure and curse, failure and curse. And yet here's the promise. We know there's the promise of a serpent crushing seed of the woman to restore all things. 
How is that going to happen? It's going to happen through Abraham such that all the clans of the ground are going to be blessed. What is the Abrahamic covenant promise? Three things, three words to remember with the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed or offspring, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. We've already talked about the land a little bit. He's already promised it in Genesis 12. When God actually institutes the covenant, the first installment of it in Genesis 15, he gives its essential dimensions. Genesis 15, 18 says this, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant. There's where the covenant starts. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates. That's a southern and a northern boundary. So we got a central southern and northern boundary. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So all these different peoples in that, within that northern to southern boundary, all those different people groups, God is giving to them that land. That is the land that he's promising. There's seed or offspring. That's the other word you need to remember with the Abrahamic covenant. Offspring. Genesis 15.5, going up a few verses, says this. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. So what is he promising there? He's promising a lot of kids, a lot of offspring, a lot of offspring for Abraham. Why? To make him a great nation. What do you need for a nation? You need a place and you need a people. You need a place, and you need a people. And so we've got the place. We've got a lot of people. But not only that, uh, we've got a king coming. Genesis 17, 6, the second installment of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, 6, he says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, reiterating that promise we just read in Genesis 15. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So now we've got, not only is Abraham going to have a lot of offspring, he's going to have kingly offspring. Kingly offspring. And not only that, Genesis 22, Genesis 22, right after Abraham passes the test of sacrificing Isaac, God gives the final oath in establishing this covenant. Genesis 22:15 says this, and the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. You remember covenants have oaths, right? We get God's oath here. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, wait a minute. He was just talking about a lot of offspring, but then he narrows it down. There's a lot of offspring, but then there's one particular offspring, a male offspring, who will possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. 
So not only does Abraham have a lot of offspring or seed, not only does he have a kingly offspring, but his line is going to carry the promise of the serpent-crushing seed or offspring of the woman, the one who will possess the gate of his enemies, the individual victorious offspring who will do what Adam failed to do and will be the second Adam to rule over all creation. And then we've already talked about blessing, right? That there is a reciprocal blessing between this nation the offspring of Abraham and all the nations of the world. There's blessing for Abraham himself. There's blessing for his people. But then, more importantly, for all the nations of the world. The Abrahamic covenant is not just about Abraham and his offspring. It's about all the clans of the ground. And we saw that reiterated just now in Genesis 22:18. All the families, all the clans of the ground, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abrahamic covenant provides land, seed, and blessing. What's it doing? What's it doing? God in this covenant is welding the fate of what will become the nation of Israel to the fate of the world. He's welding the fate of all the nations of the earth to the fate of Israel. And this promise, these three things, land, seed, and blessing, will succeed. Why? Why do we need these things to succeed? Well, again, we go back to that illustration of a beachhead, right? If we have this, this kingdom, where God establishes this kingdom, then through that, he uses it as a conduit, as a, as a means to bless all the nations of the world. It's a beachhead kingdom through which God is operating to establish this kingdom. And it is certain. It is certain. Genesis 15, if you were to go back there, you may have remembered this in your Bible reading plans. God, um, God tells Abraham, cut in half uh, different animals. Split in half these different animals. And then what's interesting is that Abraham kind of falls asleep. Now, what's going on here? This is, this is how you made a covenant in those days. How do you make a covenant? You walk arm in arm with your covenant partner. You go right down the middle of these split and a half animals. And essentially, you're taking on yourself an oath. And you're saying, if I fail on my end of the covenant, make me like one of these animals. If I fail in the covenant, make me like one of these animals. Now, what's interesting is that Abraham in Genesis 15 falls asleep. God puts him to sleep, kind of like Adam in a way. And then what happens, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch representing God's presence passes through the animals. And what's God communicating by means of that? He's saying, if I don't keep this covenant that I'm swearing to you, Abraham, then I would cease to be God, which is impossible. So it must be kept. Not only that, in Genesis 22, God said uh, he swore by himself. God swore by himself. He swore by the greatest person he could ever swear by himself. And so what this means is that the Abrahamic covenant, while it has not been fulfilled yet, will be fulfilled, will come about because God put his reputation on the line. God put his reputation on the line. What's the sign of this covenant? The sign of this covenant Male circumcision, Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Remember what a sign of the covenant is. You're supposed to be able to 
to see this mark or this sign or whatever it is and remember the covenant. Genesis 17, verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Show shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not uncircumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's supposed to picture that God has set aside the offspring of Abraham, the physical offspring of Abraham, for a particular purpose in God's plan and program. And it's not just about them, right? But when they succeed, then the world succeeds. There is blessing to all the families of the ground. This covenant is incredibly important for the unfolding of the rest of the biblical storyline. Because what we now know is that when Israel succeeds, when, when this nation is established, then all the promises, all of the blessing, the return to Edenic rest through God's serpent-crushing seed will come about. It's a beachhead kingdom to reestablish God's kingdom over the world. And this promise is reaffirmed to Isaac, then to Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and then one of them, I want to highlight this for you, Genesis 49. Remember, what's driving this, the serpent-crushing, who's the serpent-crushing seed? Who's the male serpent-crushing seed of the woman going to be? It's going to be through Abraham, it's going to be through Isaac, it's going to be through Jacob. Which of his sons? Genesis 49, 8. Judah, your, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's the king. The king will come through Judah, the king who will rule not only over Israel, but all the clans of the ground. By the end of Genesis, we see the promises of the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition to an extent. Abraham's offspring are a blessing to other nations. Think of Egypt and the famine through Joseph. Through Joseph, one of the offspring of Abraham, there is many people preserved. Abraham's offspring have begun to multiply. By the time they go down into Egypt, there's 70 people. The problem is that by the time of the end of Genesis, they're in the wrong land. They're in the land of Egypt. Which brings us to the next rung on the ladder, the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. The key, with each of these covenants, God is advancing his kingdom plan and program. What's he doing through the Mosaic Covenant? 
Well, we could say it like this, and I'll explain it a, it a bit more here in a second. The administration, that's a key word. If you had one word to tie with the Mosaic Covenant, it would be administration. The Mosaic Covenant gives the administration of kingdom blessings. The administration of kingdom blessings. To set the stage, let's go back to Genesis 15 for a minute. So When God instituted the covenant, when he walked through those pieces of animal, very interestingly, he says in 15, 13, then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God already knew and planned that Israel would go down to Egypt. He already had this relationship with them. He already knew that they would be oppressed by the Egyptians. What happened was that Egypt essentially became an incubator for this, this nation that God was building. But then as they're oppressed, as they're afflicted, as they're downtrodden, as they're discouraged, we get this in Exodus 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And the idea is that God had planned this all along. He's going to go down and rescue this oppressed and enslaved people. Notice, too, he already has a relationship with his people. The, the Exodus doesn't establish a relationship with, between God and Israel. He already had that through the Abrahamic covenant. But what is this doing? Nehemiah, which we read earlier, states it. He's making a name for himself. Through the Exodus, through those amazingly horrific ten plagues, through what he does to the Egyptians, God makes a name for himself. And not only does God make a name for himself, he ties his name to this people. He welds his name to the people of Israel. And he didn't need to do this. And what's amazing about the Exodus, it's, it's God's grace We've seen God's grace in each of the covenants. God's grace in creating everything. He doesn't have to do that. God's grace in providing a, a, an ultimate return to Edenic rest. God doesn't have to do that. God's grace through not destroying everyone through the flood. God doesn't have to do that. And in this too, God doesn't have to rescue Israel. They're plenty sinful enough. He knows that. But it's God's sovereign grace and rescue from his, for his people in the Old Testament. The Exodus is the premier event in the the Old Testament to show God's grace and rescue, redemption for his people. God rescues them and he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And that's where we institute this Mosaic or Israelite covenant. What's the purpose of it? Exodus 19, 3 through 6 spells out the purpose of the, the Mosaic covenant. 
Yahweh called to him, that's Moses, out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, the covenant he's about to establish, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is establishing a covenant with this people to make them a kingdom. A kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests mediate. They mediate between God and the other party who's not God. They're a go-between. Now, Israel is supposed to be this go-between as a nation. They're a nation standing between all the other nations and God. They're to be a nation who mediates the knowledge of the one true God to all the clans of the ground, just like the Abrahamic covenant spoke of. And as God institutes this covenant, it, the stipulations of this covenant are what we now know as the law or the Mosaic law. Really, the idea of law here, it's the idea of instruction. If this, this people is to be a kingdom of, ne- of a priests, to be a mediator between uh, God, the, uh, the one true God, and all the nations of the world, they need instruction. They need teaching how to live in relationship with this redeeming God who would, by grace, redeem them from slavery in Egypt. Ten commandments are given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And the Ten Commandments are essentially the ten principles that give, they're the ten principles that essentially explain this covenant relationship. Every other little command that you see between Exodus and Deuteronomy is a fleshing out of these commands. Somehow, when you look at an individual command in all the law between Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll be able to trace that command back to a principle established in the Ten Commandments. They're sort of the Bill of Rights, so to speak. Everything flows out of the Ten Commandments to the rest of the law. And these, these laws were to instruct Israel on how to be that kingdom of priests. Now, look at me. Very, very important. The law was never, ever designed to earn one's relationship with God. It was never, ever designed to earn one's relationship with Yahweh. What was it supposed to be? It was supposed to be a response. It was supposed to be a response of obedience, of loving response to Yahweh's grace that he expressed in the Exodus. His grace and his special relationship with Israel. Let me take you to Deuteronomy 6. Familiar passage. but it expresses that reality. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one, Yahweh. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when they, you sit in your house, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You catch the flow here. God rescues his people. What is their response? Their response should be whole-person love for him. How do you express whole-person love for God? By obeying him, by following his instructions. The law was never designed to earn the relationship. That relationship had already been given by grace through the Abrahamic covenant as a nation. The law was to be a response, a loving response to the God that had rescued him. And as they kept the law, as they kept the law, God would bless them. God would bless them. And this is where we tie in with the Abrahamic covenant. Turn over to Deuteronomy 28. We'll see how this works. How does it work that they're a mediator between the one true God and all the nations of the world? Well, we'll see it here in a minute. Deuteronomy 28, at the end of the law, the end of the establishment of this, new co- this, this Mosaic covenant, says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessings on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Yahweh will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in his ways. All the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of uh, of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of you. And Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to you. Yahweh will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down for if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words I command you today to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Did you hear, did you hear it? Land, seed, and blessing among the blessings that God would bless them if they obeyed the commandments. That's where we get into the idea of administration. As Israel would obey this law, God would richly bless them. He would keep them in their land. They would be established in their land. They would have many offspring. They would be abundant in prosperity. To what end? To what end? So that the nations would see. The nations would see something's going on in Israel. Something's going on in Israel. And we got to find out. And as that would happen... Israel would perform its priestly function. To speak to these other nations, here is the one true God. Here's how to know him by grace. 
to trust in his promise of him bringing this serpent-crushing seed of the woman that he's given to us. You can know this one too, and you can be saved like us. That's how this was supposed to work. And which makes sense of it, the sign. The sign of the Mosaic covenant, the Israelite covenant, is the Sabbath. Exodus 31 I want you to see this. This is why, this is why the Sabbath is such a big deal later on in the scriptures. Exodus 31, verse 12. Yahweh said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctified you. You shall keep, my, keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Did you catch it there right at the end? Why is the Sabbath given? Because it's supposed to mark out this people, this nation, as tied to the Creator God, the God who made everything in six days, and on the seventh day rested. And remember what that rest is, perfect, harmonious peace and relationship. The rest to which everything God is bringing everything back to. And God is saying, this people that's keeping this rest, the Sabbath, Sabbath just means rest, they are the ones through whom the Creator God is working to bring a return to Sabbath rest. So to sum up, what is the Mosaic Covenant, the Israelite Covenant, all about? The Israelite Covenant administers, it's an administrative covenant, it administers the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, so that Edenic blessing might, and rest might flow to the nations of the world. As God blessed this nation, they're to bring knowledge to all the other nations of the world and be a conduit of blessing so that his purposes in the original Eden, the original creation, might come to pass. So what have we seen in these covenants Adamic gives the purpose of the kingdom to multiply image bearers for the glory of God. Noahic gives stability so that God will bring a full redemption and a full return to that Edenic rest through the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. Abrahamic gives a beachhead kingdom through which God will reestablish his kingdom, his stewardship kingdom through the children of man over the face of the world. And the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant administers those blessings through obedience to God's instruction, God's law. It's intricate, isn't it? It's so intricate that no one could make it up. This is one of the ways we know that Scripture is true, because it is so intricate, so delicate and beautiful a plan that only God himself could do it. Bible has 66 books, over 40 authors, and yet there is a consistency, and this is what God is doing in the world. So what do you do with that? You trust that this is truly God's word, 
revelation from the creator God. And you stand in awe. You stand in awe of the God who is working in the world. And there's one hero. There's one hero in the story, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. The serpent crushing seed of the woman who has crushed the power of death on the cross and who will destroy Satan finally, that full and final crushing at his return. Do you know him? Do you know the hero of the story? And that only comes by God's grace through faith. As we think about even the Mosaic Law, part of this, right, we do this as Christians sometimes. Sometimes we think, well, the things I do, going to church, reading my Bible, praying, God will really be happy with me if I do those things. If you do that, you're stumbling over the law in the same way that Israel did. What we do in obedience as Christians is not to earn God's favor. We do not rely on the law. We do not rely on our obedience. But we rely on God's grace, the relationship that he himself established through the greater exodus, the second exodus through Jesus Christ. And then we do obey. We obey the law, the heart of the law, because of what God has done through grace. That's the motivation for Christian obedience, the same motivation that Israel was to have, to know God, to love God with all of our being, and then to obey his commands and his instruction from the word in response to that. Let's pray, and then we will have a membership recognition. Almighty God, you alone are God. As Nehemiah spoke at the very beginning and as your scriptures established, there is, there is no other. And Lord, this is your plan. This is your way. From beginning to end, this has been what you wanted to do to display your glory, to display your honor. And Lord, we are just privileged that you would save kingdom citizens along the way, that we might know you, that we might see your beauty, that the blinders, the veil that of sin might be lifted from our eyes to see how awesome and wonderful you are. And then, Lord, you put us to work, not, not to earn a relationship, but because we know you and we love you and we want to we want to express that. Thank you for the privilege of work, even the work of church membership, Lord, as we're about to celebrate. Lord, help us, help us to obey out of the right motivations, out of seeing your grace, out of seeing the gospel. And help us to be motivated by that. Lord, you are awesome. You are glorious. Christ, you are the only hero, and we love you. May you be honored in our lives and through us as a church. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.